Welcome to Make Me Watch It, the podcast where you, the listener, generally are the ones to tell me which of the over 800 unwatched movies I own I should be watching next. It's a little bit different this time. As announced in the past, this episode 30 is our final episode of Make Me Watch It. So the movies, once again, were chosen by someone else, but not by me. Thinking back about the last two and a half years worth of these podcasts, the episode that I thought was the most engaging and that I've been most proud of was the episode where John M. Wilson came on board and we discussed Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. So I thought it would be nice for the final episode to invite John back. So welcome back, John. Thank you for having me. Uh, This one might not be as heavy as that one because the topics are not nearly as in-depth, but I'm looking forward to talking about some movies. Yes, and he did say topics. We are actually going to be discussing a couple of movies that John chose. So we've got the 2014 Godzilla and 2010's Kick-Ass. So I, you know, I own both of those because, well, with Kick-Ass, I have a hard time resisting any comic adaptation to add to my collection because that's the way comic collectors work. Although I hadn't gotten around to watching it because I wasn't a huge fan of the comic series that it came from. It's not that I disliked it, I just didn't like it enough to make watching the film adaptation a priority. And then picked up Godzilla because, you know, my wife really wanted to see Kong Skull Island and they're connecting because it was filmed in her home country of Vietnam. So she was more interested in the landscapes in Kong Skull Island than Kong himself. But I didn't know why she was interested at that early point in our relationship, so I just got the whole continuity. So that's why I own them and hadn't watched them yet. So, John, why don't you share with their listeners why you felt that those are the ones that you should get me to watch for this podcast? Um, it was a little bit self-serving. Uh, I was looking through the, your list of movie possessions, and I saw one movie that I was planning to watch anyway. And I saw another movie that I never shy away from an opportunity to rewatch. I, I find excuses to rewatch this film. So the first of those is Godzilla. Um, I had not seen it. I've recently taken a liking to the old 1950s and 60s Godzilla and related Daikaiju films from Japan. Uh, I've been watching a lot of those. And so my knowledge of just the history and the, and the mythology is definitely a lot more than it ever was, you know, as a younger adult or as a kid. Um, And so when I saw the trailers for the upcoming Godzilla film, uh, I was very excited. I knew who these monsters were and, and, and they looked fantastic. And I was good. I was, we're definitely planning on seeing it, but I had never seen the introductory film or the, or the preceding film. So I was going to watch that. And I saw it was on your list. I was like, Hey, let's watch that. And Kick-Ass, <laughs> um, Kick-Ass is one of my favorite things. It's just, it's something I love. When I watch it, I'm just in awe and happiness the entire time. Well, not happiness the entire time, because there is that one part right towards the end. But um, but even with that, I felt like that, you know, we'll get to it. But that ending drama is extremely effective for me. Um, I just, I just think the whole thing is great. I'm not as much a fan of the sequel, 
Uh, we can talk about that more as we go along. Uh, I don't think it quite has at the same tone as the first one, like at all. And part of what makes the first one so much fun is that it is so much fun. And they changed that for the second. Um, but anyways, yeah, definitely wanted to watch these again. When I saw you hadn't seen Kick-Ass, I thought sharing it with you would be fun. So I'm curious to see what you thought. Uh, yeah, overall, I actually enjoyed it more than I remembered enjoying the comic series. So it, like you said, it is a lot of fun. The The comic, I felt it was more emphasis on you know, the, the violence and, you know, oh, look, hit girl, this little girl is doing these ultraviolet things. And the, it's similar to I have with much, but not all of Mark Miller's writing. It feels like he's saying, wouldn't this be cool and look great on the movie screen? And the way he's writing for the comic page, especially for his independent stuff, feels more like he's writing it for the purposes of having a film adaptation made. And in the case of Kick-Ass, that contract to get the film adaptation was signed so quickly and he's so successful in that regard that he hadn't even finished writing the comic series when they were writing the movie script. So they did their own ending and he did his own ending and they're not necessarily the same ending. I remember that. I have not read all of the comic series. I had um, release date issues and I fell off the boat with that. Um, but it was the first couple issues of the comic that got me to go see the movie. Um, one of the more famous scenes in the film is whenever hit girl comes out in costume for the first time, um, having just stabbed a guy through the back. Um, and I'm not sure how much I should be repeating what she says on your shutter, what your rating is. Um, but when she, does that in the comic, I was like, oh, wow, I have never seen anything like this, and I want more. And then I found out they were making a movie, and I was like, okay, definitely need to see that on the film. Yeah, and I will, you know, sort of tip my hand about my overall view of this right now. If they hadn't found Chloe Grace Moretz to play Hit Girl, I don't think this movie would have been nearly as successful. Oh, totally agreed. She carries this film in a lot of ways. Which is amazing because she wasn't new to acting by any stretch, but this was probably her biggest role so far. And it led to a lot of work. Um, there's one point a few years, just a handful of years after this, where she was called the busiest actress or busiest actor rather in Hollywood because she was just, there was just so much she was involved in. She's probably the richest little girl right now. I say little girl, woman is 22. Yeah. Yeah, she recently turned 22. At the time this was filmed, she was a 13-year-old playing an 11-year-old. Uh, we do go through sort of the major acting credits. As far as the IMDb is concerned, she is best known for Kick-Ass, the 2013 remake of Carrie, where she played the title character, mm -hmm, The Fifth that. Wave, and Let Me In. But looking at her IMDb, she is the voice of Wensley Adams in the upcoming reboot of The Adams Family. She's the voice of Kayla in the upcoming Tom and Jerry, the voice of Snow White in the upcoming Red Shoots and The Seven Dwarfs. But she's recently appeared in Greta, Suspiria, Miseducation of Cameron Post. I mean, no shortage of roles here. So a 22-year-old with 68 IMDb acting credits. And some of these are fairly major ones she's you know 
she was at the point in her career that when Muppets Most Wanted came out, they brought her in for a cameo that they expected the audiences to recognize. She plays right. the newspaper girl. But yeah, and she's done a lot of voice work as well, including Inside Out, including my friends Tigger and Pooh. So yeah, like you said, her career didn't start with Kick-Ass. It started in 2004 with The Guardian. So she's been acting, depending on how filming dates compared to her uh, to her birthday in the course of the year. She was either six or seven when she started acting professionally enough for those credits to appear on the IMDb. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Things like My Name is Earl and Desperate Housewives. Which I saw a lot of both of those. I don't remember her appearance in My Name is Earl, but I would not have been on the lookout for her. She's probably just a small mm-hmm. bean at some point in the film, in the story, one of the episodes. Um, yeah, she was Candy Stoker in Broke Joy's Fancy Figurine. You have no memory. I saw when it was on. But mm-hmm. It was one of our favorite things to watch, too, but it, it's been a long time. Yeah, my wife and I are watching it. I'm finally finishing it because I kind of, dropped off after season two and broadcast, but kept collecting the DVDs. So I've seen that episode at some point in the last year as my wife and I have been on the rewatch because we're now, we, we're about a quarter of the way through season four right now, which is the final season. I remember that episode, even with the character's name, I can't put my finger on, on how she contributed to the episode. Right. So that was pretty significant. And that is one of the things that impressed me about Kick-Ass because Aside from Nicolas Cage, when it came out, a lot of the names in the cast didn't really mean anything to me. But going back and watching it now, well, there's Quicksilver. There's the other Quicksilver. There's- yeah. And, and the guy from this goes on to be in Godzilla whenever he's much older and more filled out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Aaron Taylor Johnson. Um, Todd. Todd's actor goes on to be a major part of American horror story. Uh, and also of course, Quicksilver in the X-Men films, whereas Aaron is Quicksilver in the Avengers film. Um, there's, there's a lot of progression for the actors in this. Um, his other friend, Marty, I think, I don't know that I've seen him in anything else. Same for the two young women, um, Erica and, Oh, the character's name escapes me, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, uh, Katie, I believe. Katie Doma, Lindsay Finesca, or Fonseca, I just brought up her name. I don't recall seeing them in much of anything else, but, and of course, the actor who plays the friend, Chris Domenico, Christopher Mintz Plus, was very well known for being McLovin on, I think it was Superbad. Okay. Um, yeah, I haven't actually seen Superbad. So he he was he had, he had a uh, following among the sort of you know geek movie watcher community. So you have a lot of names coming into this film, and you have a lot of names coming out of this film. Yes, yeah. So there we go. He is, yeah. So Christopher Mintz-Plasse was Fogel on Superbad. Of course, he's in both Kick-Ass movies, and he was Fishlegs in How to Train Your Dragon. It's his most prominent roles. His father. Frank D'Amico is played by Mark Strong, who, mm-hmm. for some reason, IMDb only lists for Kingsman the Golden Circle. But comic book movies have been very good to him. He recently played Dr. Savannah in Shazam. Oh, that was him, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. He was also Sinestro, the best part of the 
live-action Green Lantern film from 2009. Mm-hmm. And he was Lord Henry Blackwood, who was the primary antagonist in the first Sherlock Holmes movie starring Robert Downey Jr. Okay. I have seen that, but I didn't really get into it at the time. I don't really remember it, but I, I believe you. Yeah, well, yeah, he was, so he's actually a good actor. He's one of those ones, he, he can find that line where he can play it straight and bring gravitas to a role. But in the movie here, that's primarily fun. He can do it with just enough edge that he doesn't take the fun away and drag the emotional currents down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you believe that, you know, for his character, this is all absolutely serious. But he could say absolutely serious things in a way that still makes you laugh because that's the tone of the film. Right. He does walk that line very well in this film because he, men- he is menacing. He is menacing as a character. He is menacing as a villain in this film. And you believe it 100% of the time, even though you're not necessarily in this movie to be scared of a bad guy. Mm-hmm. So now if we look at some of the other leads, we've got Elizabeth McGovern as Mrs. Lazowski. So this is uh, the lead character, Kick-Ass's father. She is, according to the IMDb, best known for a few very prominent projects. So she was Janine in Ordinary People, winner of Best Picture from 1980. She was Deborah in Once Upon a Time in America, Cora Crawley in Downton Abbey, and Moira in The Handmaid's Tale, oh, the she 1990 played- adaptation. She played Mrs. Crawley. Okay. She's only in five seconds of this film to die. Yeah. Yeah. So it feels like she's one of those gets. Take someone prominent and, and, and go, well, look who we've got in our movie. Uh-huh. So, yeah. It's, but as you're saying, her role starts and ends in flashback. Now, Aaron Taylor Johnson, we've already mentioned some of his credits. You know, he's also in the Kingsman movies, as was Mark Strong. He plays Kick-Ass. The IMDb says he's also best known for Nocturnal Animals, Nowhere Boy, and the 2014 Godzilla, where he also plays the lead. But yeah, to me, he was one of the Quicksilvers. He's the, the Avengers Age of Ultron Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. Which I never saw coming. Hey, hey. Yeah, he was in a recent uh, adaptation of Anna Karenina, which I'm probably mispronouncing. I don't know if it's Karenina. I've heard it pronounced so many ways, but always by English people who are trying to figure out what the Russian pronunciation would be, so I'm never confident in how I'm pronouncing that. Right. And then his one friend, Todd, Evan Peters, yeah, he is the Pietro Maximoff in the Fox films, who apparently exists solely because they realized, hey, we've got rights to both of these, and he's going to be in Age of Ultron. We should put our stamp on Quicksilver as well. And they were kind of Mm. forced to put him in here. Um, and I think that actually worked out quite well for them because they did a pretty, I mean, it's, it's not hugely important to the plot, but it is a very memorable scene and it's comedic and it helps, you know, the character feel fun. I think they did a really good job with that Quicksilver. Um, I think the Quicksilver got in Avengers age of Ultron probably has a bit more pathos to him, not just because he doesn't survive the film. Um, but, but yeah, I like both Quicksilvers. I'm glad we have two different versions of the character. Yeah, you, you, knowing the history, it's easy to look at Days of Future Past and see, yeah, this is an insertion. 
because his sequence is phenomenal. And then he just goes away and leaves you wondering, why didn't you have him on the team for the rest of the movie? Mm -hmm. That's why. And then in X-Men Apocalypse, he also has a fantastic sequence. Right. And that was more deliberate. Yeah. So prior to these, he'd also had guest appearances on Monk, um, you know, as Eric Tavella in Mr. Monk and the Genius. He'd appeared on House. He had a recurring role on One Tree Hill. You know, guest spots on Ghost Whisperer, Criminal Minds. And then the episode of The Mentalist came out shortly after this, but you know, would have been filmed after as well. And then, yeah, I would say it's really the Days of Future Past is what pushed him into more of the spotlight. And those Fox X-Men movies are probably still his biggest. Mm-hmm. IMDb also lists Never Back Down, where he plays Max Cooper. I would imagine he's probably making a lot of bank off of American Horror Story. So I'm surprised that's not one of the more prominent listings. Because um, he's been in every season. And for those who don't know, that's, that's an anthology series. And that every season has a different story with a different cast of characters. But they keep a lot of the same actors. So you have all these actors who are working from year to year. But they're telling different stories about different characters every year. And, um, and he's been in pretty much every season since it started. Yeah, it, it seems like it's more of a British approach to American television, where in Britain, you know, the same creative team will do a six to eight episode series, and they're done with that idea, but they like working together, so then the same people make a completely new show. Whereas this, it's, okay, we're going to do that, but every show is going to be horror, and we're just going to call it new seasons of the same show, because that's what American audiences expect. Right. So the, the next major lead is Clark Duke, who's known for Kick-Ass 2, but not 1, both Hot Tub Time Machines and The Croods, as far as IMDb is concerned. But he also does voices on Robot Chicken, you know, Superman Chin, Adventure Time with Finn and Jake. He was uh, Justin Rockandy, or the Jawbreaker guy, in one episode. He was Barry in eight episodes of Two and a Half Men. Uh, you know, 19 episodes of The Office as Clark. And that's the American office, not the British office. And got his acting start in 1992 as Elliot Hartman in Hearts of Fire, a show that I had completely forgotten about until I saw the listing here. So he would have been six or seven years old when he started acting. Right. So now um, for the other prominent cast members here, we'll just quickly run through those before we get into more the production staff and then into the movie itself. Uh, we've got Sophie Wu who's best known for these two, Wild Child and The Fades. Um, She's got the shortest IMDb list we've seen so far, 27 credits, including two upcoming. So her credited career starts in 2006 with Casualty. And going through it, this looks like it would have been the biggest project she was involved in prior to this, and for a while after. Except maybe an episode of Black Mirror. There's... She's got a lot of work, but... Some of them are like voice works in video games I haven't played. There's a lot of short films. So she's out there working, but I think the Kick-Ass series are probably her most prominent roles. I'm looking at Lindsay Fonseca, um, mm-hmm. well-known for Kick-Ass, Kick-Ass 2, The Ward, and Hot Tub Time Machine. But she also had um, seven episodes of Agent Carter as a character named Angie Martinelli, and I don't remember who that is, and I want to go back and find out. 
I really loved both seasons of that show. Uh, and I did not remember, I do not remember re- recognizing that actress. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't help you with that because Agent Carter is one of those things where, you know, I got the season pass on iTunes, but haven't actually gotten around to watching it yet. And oh, I really should. Okay. I've heard wonderful things from about it very consistently. For the, for those in the uh, audience, then she was, um, Agent Carter's good friend who works in a diner and has a very, you know, go getter, but also kind of naive air to her. Um, as soon as I see her in her outfit for the, uh, for the show, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's her. So she, um, when agent Carter comes to, I forget where New York or wherever it is that she's doing her thing. Uh, Angie Martinelli's her first friend and gets her the place to live and everything. So yeah, I did not realize that was the same actor, but I should have done because they have the same eyes and everything else. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, looking at this, she was, the daughter in 65 episodes of how I met your mother. Oh, she's the one sitting there staring at the screen. She's gotta be. Um, she was Alex in 73 episodes of Nikita, the 2010 reboot. I never saw that. Yeah. Um, 18 episodes of desperate housewives as Dylan Mayfair, six episodes of big love as Donna. She had an appearance in an episode of heroes. And as well as guest spots on House MD, CSI, Waterfront. Uh, she had a 91 episode run on The Young and the Restless as Colleen Carlton. Probably a young role there. Yeah, that would have started in 2001, as well as work on Boston Public, NYPD Blue, and Malcolm in the Middle. So, yeah, starting in 2001 when she was born in 87, right? She's been consistently acting since 14. So yeah, looking at this, I'm actually surprised she didn't seem more familiar because she's had a lot of work. You, know, you already mentioned Christopher Mintz-Plasse, who was Fogel and Superbad. You know, we've already talked about him. Uh, so then the other cast member is the elephant in the room. The one actor, where when I saw the trailers, I'm like, oh, they got that guy. And that would be Nicolas Cage. <laughs> the guy who's such a huge comic book fan that he not only named his son Kalel, but when he was getting into acting and decided he didn't want to ride on his uncle's coattails, after his first job credit as Nicholas Coppola, he changed his stage name and named himself after Luke Cage, who was his favorite fictional character. I had no idea that he was a Coppola. Okay. And Luke Cage, yeah, that's fantastic. Um... He is one of those actors that gets so maligned, and yet I can't think of a single thing I've seen him in that he didn't act his socks off in. Um, not too long after this, he did Family Man, and that movie rocked me to my core. Um, just because of my own, you know, family trauma drama stuff and the way it resonated with that. Uh, he is fantastic in this. He does the big daddy role as a pastiche of Alan West's Batman from the sixties. And, um, he plays this guy who obviously completely loves his daughter, but is also not entirely mentally balanced because of his obsession with, um, you know, getting revenge. So there are times where his eyes are just that one touch of crazy. Um, 
Actually, they spent a lot of time with his eyes being just that one touch of crazy. In his opening scene with Chloe Grace Moritz, where they're standing in the, um, in the concrete canal, and he's shooting at her, is just so iconic to their relationship and to their characters. He is shooting a handgun at his daughter to get her used to taking bullets in a bulletproof vest. Um, and yeah, yeah, I love him in this, and I kind of love Nick Cage in general. Yeah, he's, he's done a lot of good work. I mean, he really started to stand out with, you know, three in a row with Peggy Sue Got Married, Raising Arizona, and Moonstruck back in the late 80s. Those all came out in either 86 or 87. Uh-huh. And then kept going Honeymoon in Vegas in 92, Guarding Tess, It Could Happen to You, Leaving Las Vegas, The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, City of Angels, Snake Eyes, 8mm. There was a time where every movie he was in was a hit because he was in them. Um, Family Man you mentioned is also very good. That's from 2000. He was Superman for a hot minute. It never ended up making it to the screen, but I mean, he was, he was filmed. It was, it was going to be the next big Superman thing, and it just ended up falling off the rails. Um, and they were going to do the whole death and return storyline, but involving Brainiac and some other stuff. Um, it's, a, it's a highly intriguing story with that whole film, in, in which you can you know, watch more details on in the documentary, Whatever Happened to... Or no, no, no. The Death of Superman Lives, I think is the name of the documentary. Yes, I think so. Yeah. All about... Yeah, so he was Tim Burton's choice to play Superman when Tim Burton's Batman made so much box office money, they said, okay, we're going to keep going. What's the next one? But his, the first time you know, he tried to make comic book movies, the first time it actually worked successfully was Ghost Rider. So he was Johnny Blaze and Ghost Rider in that adapta- adaptation by Mark Steven Johnson. Um, and then after Kick-Ass, he... Played it again in Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, the sequel, which I own but haven't seen. I saw the first Ghost Rider, and it was okay. Um, And his most recent comic book work, he actually did get to play the voice of Superman in Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Oh, yeah. So he has officially been Superman, and he's also been Spider-Man, the Spider-Man noir version in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which... I know Black Panther was the superhero movie that got the Best Picture nomination for 2018, but, you know, in the year with Teen Titans Go to the Movies, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Aquaman, Black Panther, and Avengers Infinity War, Into the Spider-Verse is my pick for the best superhero movie of the year. Yeah. So, that was just an incredible film. So, yeah, if any listeners haven't seen that one, track it down. Totally worth it. Stay through all the credits. There are two scenes. So, yeah, he was definitely a big get. If we check him, he's he won the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas and was nominated for Adaptation. But he, we're looking at a Golden Globe winner for Leaving Las Vegas and nominated for Moonstruck Honeymoon in Vegas and Adaptation. Nominated for BAFTAs. Nominated for 2020s. Uh, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror nominated him for Face Off. And that was one that I was super intrigued by the uh, trailers on, but I never actually saw the film. Yeah, and you know, like you say, Nicolas Cage gets trash-talked a lot. But 
Cage and Travolta, who collaborated in Face Off, they were the you know the two leads in that John Woo film. One of the things that I have to give them both credit for is that they generally seek out roles that are unlike roles they've played before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's especially true of John Travolta. I've never seen him play two similar roles unless we're talking about a contractually obligated sequel mm-hmm. where it's literally the same guy. And that's, even then, I can only think of that in the Look Who's Talking movies. Right. Which, you know, first one was really fun, and then it became a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just to wrap up the major parts of the crew, so the writing credits, some credits go to uh, Mark Miller and John Romita Jr., but that's largely because they were the creators of the comic book miniseries this is based on that was released through Marvel's sort of independent publishing imprint. So Marvel would publish for creators that they invited to publish through the line but the creators retain all rights to the characters. And the creators are also responsible for their own promotions. So the actual screenplay credits are shared by Jane Goldman and Matthew K. Vaughn. So Goldman has 16 writing credits to her name. So there's Badial Syndrome, Stardust, Kick-Ass, The Debt. She also has credits shared on the screenplay for X-Men First Class. She's got story credits on X-Men Days of Future Past, screenplay credits on Kingsman The Secret Service, and Mrs. Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Oh, that was a fun movie. It was, and uh, yeah, more credits for Kingsman The Golden Circle and the upcoming Great Game. And if some of those seem familiar, that's probably because uh, director Matthew Vaughn was also involved. He's, you know, he was director of Stardust, Kick-Ass, X-Men First Class, and those three Kingsman films. So he's actually done well for himself with comic adaptations. Yeah. So he's brought her in as his collaborator on a lot of these. And I would say X-Men First Class stands out to me because that was a bit of an X-Men renaissance. Because the X-Men films started strong and then were wavering for a while. Mm -hmm. And it's... I feel it was when he stepped in and did First Class that they got back on track and rejuvenated and continued. Yeah, we were just talking about this over at Make Ours Marvel because we just did our discussion of X-Men The Last Stand. And um, there's a lot of that movie that holds up pretty well. Uh, you you, You can definitely poke some holes in it, but you can also poke some holes in the X Men franchise as a whole up to that point. Uh, but it was after that movie that, you know, the high of X Men films just was not quite as there. And then Wolverine Origins did very little to restore confidence in the franchise. And it was first class that, although I have some quibbles with it, I really enjoyed it. And I think that is what led to the X-Men films getting a rejuvenation. Like you said, it's a bit of a renaissance in, in, the, uh, in the franchise. Yes, I, I, I would agree. I mean, it was the, the one-two punch of Last Stand and X-Men Origins Wolverine. The, my reaction to those two is the reason I didn't get around to seeing the first class until it was on home video. I just... It didn't get my support at the box office. Mm-hmm. 
And having seen that, I kind of regret that. But it's it's the same thing. The ups and downs of the X-Men franchise caused me to see First Class for home video and Logan. I waited for home video, and Logan is one of the best superhero movies ever made. Mm-hmm. So, again, regret that one. But this is not the X-Men podcast. That's just Although Matthew Vaughn's credits. <laughs> um, so that's really where it is. And so Kick-Ass actually originally came out April 16th, 2010 with a $30 million production budget. So it is fairly low budget because nobody here actually has superpowers. This is about a kid in high school who's inspired by comics to put on a suit, in his case, a suit, or a, a wetsuit he just bought online, and get out there and try to fight the good fight, gets his butt very thoroughly kicked the first time he does it but as a result suffers nerve damage, which renders him impervious to a lot of pain. So he puts on the suit, gets back out there again, and starts to develop a following. Meanwhile, Big Daddy and Hit Girl are out there doing a more legitimate vigilante thing. So Big Daddy is a former police officer, we eventually learn, whose life was destroyed by this drug dealer that's out there. and. He spent some time in jail for a crime he did not commit. And when he came out, he became this vigilante, took custody of the daughter who died while he was in prison. He was born or, while he was in prison. Yes, born while he was in prison. Her mother died, you know, while she was out there or while he was away and trains her to be his protege in almost a Batman and Robin thing. Uh, you know, very much a pastiche on Batman and Robin. And like you say, he plays it like it's Adam West. But then. His 11-year-old girl slaughters a dozen of these guys without breaking a sweat. And they, because they're working in the background and Kick-Ass is working in the foreground and, you know, has his own MySpace page and things like that, because, you know, 2010, MySpace was an actual thing. (laughs) Barely. Like, the site still functioned. I think it was more of a thing when the script was written than it was when the movie actually came out. That's true, yeah. So at least it was recognizable as, you know, a part of a story. And, yeah, he was doing this. He, he went viral when people saw him defending the innocent. And he became super popular to the point that there were professional kick-ass impersonators, one of whom was killed because they thought it was kick-ass. Because they're blaming Kick-Ass for these deaths, not realizing it was Hit-Girl. Until the drug dealer's son, who happened to be a classmate of Kick-Ass, you know, figured out how to sort of lure Kick-Ass in and was basically able to provide an alibi for him. He's like, no, he's just a nerdy guy. He did not let or light this fire and kill all these people. That's when they find out that, yeah, Big Daddy and Hit-Girl are a thing. Big Daddy and Hit-Girl see Kick-Ass and they actually cover some of his butt for him. They're like, yeah, your IP address was really easy to to track down and find out who and where you were. So we fixed that for you. Stuff like that. And then they end up getting involved together. And uh, Big Daddy is killed in the process. But Hit Girl and Kick-Ass team up afterwards to take out the drug dealers. And when it's all said and done, the organization would appear to be dismantled aside from the fact that the lead drug dealer's son, Kick-Ass's classmate, who's always wanted 
to come in and take over the business is left alive and hating these two. So I'm guessing that that's a major part of the premise for the sequel I haven't seen yet. Yes. Yes, it is. So yeah, $30 million production budget with a rule of thumb that it, you have to bring in two to three times your production budget to be profitable. It had a domestic gross of a little over $48 million, a foreign gross of about $48 million. So the total worldwide is $96,188,903. So... Which That's, meets that triple goal. Yeah. And exceeds it by just a little bit. So, yeah, there's definitely a kick-ass two there, as we saw. So, yeah, overall, I'm, I'm actually glad that you gave me the, the kick in the pants needed to watch this. Because, no pun intended. Yeah. Because, yeah, this, it was a lot more fun watching this than I had reading the source material. You know, I was raised on violent films. Uh, I grew up on slasher movies, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, that sort of thing. And so violence has never really bothered me. Um, A fantasy aspect of violence, I've always had some amount of fun and enjoyment from. And then also taking social mores and spinning them on their head is also something that delights me to no end. So you have this film which does both. It has, you know, some uber violence that is not so visceral as to be disturbing for the most part, with the one big exception of, I wouldn't say Big Daddy's death is disturbing, but it is. it does have a great impact. But you have the complete irreverence for the way that an 11-year-old girl should, he puts in quotes, should act. Just throwing that aside. And letting this girl act like a person, act like a, a you know a normal human being as far as her language choices and her her casualness for uh, dealing with other people. She is not you know timid in any way. She's been taught confidence, and uh, I think it all works really really well for her character. Um, but it is definitely one of those things that takes social mores and throws them out the window. A huge to-do was made about the fact that this 11-year-old girl is using some pretty intense profanity on the screen. And I look at that and I see my kids. You know, I, I <laughs> whenever I talk to other people about how I raise my kids, I teach them how to swear. You know, I, I teach them, you know, context and uses of language and I don't taboo it at the house but I also teach them contexts of, you know, where this would not be in a, where this would not be appropriate. And you should, you know, make sure you're talking the right ways in the right audiences and all that other stuff. So rather than giving them taboos, I give them education. And so I, I, I saw hit girl as, you know, a bit of a somewhat, you know, obviously my children are not running around with katanas, but aside from that, you know, a, a, a take on my own children, my own, in my own uh, child rearing. Yeah, I think, I think Hit Girl and Lily would actually get along quite well. Yeah, but when Hit Girl started decided it's time to kill people, I'm hoping Lily would stay at home. Yeah, yeah, she would. <laughs> yeah, you say brainwashed, I say turn it into a game. Is one of the great lines of the story because she has been taught that the violence is a necessary part of getting our revenge and our revenge is a game. It's fun. Yeah. And 
for the most part, it's played well. I I do think that they could have shot her her final moment a little bit better. Because when it's all said and done, you do learn that, yes, the Big Daddy has a good friend as an ex-cop who ends up adopting Hit Girl after Big Daddy dies. And she's enrolled in the same school as Kick-Ass so he can keep an eye on her. And this little girl shows up, the first thing that happens is a couple bullies try to take her lunch money. And we all know at this point how that's going to play out. Right. She, if anything, she's going to walk away with their lunch money. Right. I... I do think it lingered a little too long seeing her crack her knuckles first. This, she doesn't strike me as a knuckle cracker. She strikes me as just someone who would act now. But rather than show that violence on the school steps where it would maybe seem more out of place than, you know, up against drug dealers, she cracks her knuckles while the camera slowly tilts away. Yeah, I think the knuckle cracking, you're right, is maybe not something she would actually do, but it does convey the concept of what's about to happen without actually showing it. It's a, it's a shorthand mm-hmm. that, for me, it worked. Yeah, it is. I just, I just found it, in, it was an out-of-character stalling tactic just because the level of violence and brutality that she has been trained to use would be out of place on the playground, and it's going to leave her in a less sympathetic place mm. than just panning away so you, all you hear is the smack, smack, ugh, all. Oh that we all know is coming. So, it, you know, perhaps that it would have actually helped if they'd shown it, but also shown that she understands context and just, you know, puts them in holds and makes them cry uncle without, you know, breaking any bones or anything. Hope so. We'll hope that that's what she does. She's still in school the next movie, so theoretically she learned some boundaries. Okay. All right, so I don't, the only other things that we want to do on Kick-Ass before moving on to Godzilla are the, and we like to go through any awards that films have won, as well as any messages, morals, and meanings. I don't know what awards this is won. I guess you probably have those in a list. Uh, Yeah, I just pulled that up. It's got a few nominations from sort of the minor awards, so we're not talking, you know, the Oscars, People's Choice, or Golden Globes, or BAFTAs. Those are the big ones. It was nominated for Best Horror Slash Thriller for the Saturn Awards, you know, the Alliance of Women Film Journalists gave a, a couple of nominations to Chloe Grace Moretz, including Best Breakthrough Performance. So scrolling down, the actual names attached, there's a little bit for Aaron Taylor-Johnson for the Best British Comedy Performance in a Film from the British Comedy Awards. And then, you know, the British Independent Film Awards for Screenplay and Director. But yeah, there's a lot more recognition for Chloe Grace Moretz. She actually won Breakthrough Film Artist of the Year in this year, shared with Let Me In Diary of a Wimpy Kid. So, yeah, so there's a, a number of of awards here. It actually, you know, won some Scream Awards. So, again, not the the big ones, not the awards where you know when you get one, you add to your paycheck, right? But still respectable turnout. So now, I don't know, do you think there's any messages or morals in this? The revenge quest ended up coming back on Big Daddy in a really big way. His desire to take care of his daughter and get revenge ended up leaving his daughter parentless. So, I don't think there are any messages and morals wrapped up in trying to judge the way he raised his daughter. Which is interesting because, like, that ne- although 
one character does condemn it, I don't feel like the story condemns it. Instead, what it condemns is Big Daddy's obsession with revenge. Yeah, because even the character who condemns that life for her, he ends up giving her the life he thought she should have had. Right? That she is adopted by him mm-hmm. in the end. So, yeah, I would agree. there, And there is the, you know, every time the drug dealers are trying to, to stop the heroes, it does not work out. So, you know, there, there is some, something to be said about a life of crime doesn't really pay. Because with, with the exception of the child who's not really involved in the life of crime but wants to be, none of them make it through. Right. And it does definitely bring about and highlight the concept of bystanders. The sort of bystander phenomenon that people will sit there and watch something bad happen and either will refuse to get involved or will tell themselves that somebody else will take care of it. So they don't have to do anything because it's probably already taken care of by somebody else. And so in this film, you have a lot of situations that sort of the reason that um, Dave ends up putting on the costume, one of the inspirations is that while they're getting mugged in one of the opening scenes, there's a man standing at the window and he doesn't even walk away. He pulls the blinds, pulls the curtains so he can't see it, not just won't see it, but can't see it. And the narration is like, but be honest, would you have done anything different? So the, the, mo- the motivation to become a quote-unquote superhero in this film, a costumed hero in this film, is the fact that something needs to be done to help make the world a better place, to help make things better for people who are oppressed. And that resonates with me. It's a very, it's a very Superman uh, message. It's a very Spider-Man message, although Spider-Man kind of gets guilted into it rather than inspired to do it. But that you have to help because there's no one else to help. And your help is needed. Yeah, there, there is definitely that. Because if you look at it, there's so many times where just by sheer numbers, the, the bad guys could have been put down because there are that many more innocents in the area. Mm-hmm. But like you said, there's a bystander effect. With human psychology, the more witnesses there are, the less likely it is that any of them are going to step forward and get involved. Because everybody will wait for someone else. People who will get involved as the only witness will not get involved as one of 50. But that's just, that's the way people are. And we're not going to fix that on this podcast. No. We could try. Okay, so shall we move on to our next Aaron Taylor Johnson film? Sure. Yeah, so the 2014 Godzilla, specifically released on May 16th, 2014. This one is directed by Gareth Edwards, who is also known for directing Rogue One, the you know the Star Wars film, as well as playing a Resistance trench soldier in The Last Jedi. So the, the Rogue One director has a cameo in Last Jedi. So Rogue One and Godzilla are his most recent directing credits. He'd also directed Monsters, a couple of short films, and... Um, an end-day TV movie, as well as a couple episodes of TV documentary series Perfect Disaster and Heroes and Villains. So he is fairly new to the directing game, especially, I would say, based on this, Godzilla was his first major production. Mm-hmm. 
possibly monsters, but I don't even recall that. You know, the IMDb release dates list the release date in Kazakhstan first. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's a, a, budish, a budget of about 500,000 British pounds and an opening weekend of 350,000 British pounds. So that is a British film. That could be why I didn't see it. It appears to be a British independent film that it didn't necessarily make it over to North America. The writing credits. So Max Borenstein is the one responsible for the screenplay, or at least he's credited for the screenplay. He also did the screenplay for Kong Skull Island, 10 episodes of the Minority Report TV series. And his only credited work prior to Godzilla here is Sword Swallowers and Thin Men, although he does have story credit on Godzilla King of the Monsters. And the IMDb also says that there's uncredited writing contributions from Frank Darabont and David S. Goyer. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So Darabont is quite the writer. I mean, he wrote the adaptations of The Green Mile and The Shawshank Redemption. He was one of the major contributing writers to The Walking Dead and The Mist, as well as, you know, Adventures of Young Indiana Jones. He's, for how long he's been working, I mean, he's been working as a writer since 1983. He's only got 22 credits, but it seems like he's carefully choosing his scripts and doing a really good job with them. I think he was basically the showrunner on The Walking Dead for the first several seasons. He was, yes. And then I think there was a falling out of some sort. Because I remember Frank Darabont leaving the show was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, there, there was. It was. There was apparently some friction between him and Robert Kirkman. Gotcha. But it doesn't sound like Robert Kirkman is the most frictionless collaborator in general. But, yeah, again, not a Walking Dead podcast. So the other credited writer who did, or credited with the uncredited writer, I should say, the other listed writer on the IMDb is David S. Goyer, who's probably best known to our listeners for his contributions to Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Dark City, and Batman v Superman. Dawn of Justice. So he's also did the screenplay for the upcoming Terminator Dark Fate, for Constantine The Legend Continues, the Constantine TV series. He contributed to 13 episodes, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, Blade the TV series, as well as the other Blade films. So he wrote all three of the Blade films starring Wesley Snipes. So his credits go back to Death Warrant in 1990. I have never seen any of the Blade movies. Again, I own all three because comics, but I've only actually watched the first one. So, which again, not bad, just didn't make me feel like, you know, I really needed to prioritize watching the sequels. They were Marvel's biggest movies for a while because they predate the Spider-Man X-Men films. They do. Blade was their second film adaptation. And it came out a good 12 to 14 years after their first, Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. Yeah. If you told me that the first Marvel property that was going to get a feature film There aren't that many movies out there where Leah Thompson straddles a duck. No. No. And just the, the pure notion that that was the first Marvel property to make it to the big screen in theatrical film format, as opposed to the 
Captain America sequel from the 1940s, or not sequel, sorry, serial from the 1940s. Right. Which I swear was written as a Green Hornet serial, but they didn't have the rights. So they swapped out some character names. Have you seen that one? As you do. I haven't. Uh, the only serial superhero serials I've seen are the first Batman one, both Superman ones, and the first couple of chapters of the Captain Marvel one. Okay. Yeah, the the serial for Captain America, there is no super soldier serum. He's in the United States fighting criminals stateside during World War II. And they say he's a district attorney, but he spends all his time hanging out in a newspaper office and gives the newspaper employees orders that they follow. So I swear it was someone wrote a sequel to the previous year's successful Green Hornet serial, but that had another script for its own sequel. So they sold it to a different company that didn't have the Green Hornet rights and they just swapped it out for a character they did have the rights to. I believe it. Uh, Anyway, into the cast. So we've got Ken Watanabe. So he is best known for Last Samurai, Inception, This Godzilla, and Transformers Age of Extinction. Most recently, he was Lieutenant Hyde Yoshida in Detective Pikachu. He's also the king in a recent King and I. Um, He's the voice of Drift in a few Transformers movies, actually. The Last Knight is showing up here as well. Mm Mm-hmm and so forth. So he's got credits going back to 1983. He has a very memorable face, um, which is why I'm having trouble placing which one is Drift in the Transformers films. It might be the one that has a sort of samurai look to him, but I don't want to make that assumption just based on the fact that Watanabe is Japanese. So it could be somebody else. Yeah, and also the a guy who was got an Oscar nomination for The Last Samurai. Yes. But he plays Dr. Ishiro Serizawa in this film, who is a character from the original Godzilla film, Um, although he plays a bit of a different role. In the original film, he comes up with, he has this oxygen destroyer device that is released in water and basically disassociates oxygen atoms from organic tissue, which has the effect of destroying the flesh of the monsters or, or something along those lines. They're not super clear because they're not super concerned with the science of it all. They use that on Godzilla at the end and basically they kill Godzilla. So all the Godzillas you see in later Godzilla films are not actually the same cre- creature as in the first Godzilla film. In this one, he's just one of the scientists, one of the characters from Japan who is concerned with everything. And although a large portion of this film takes place in Japan, it is very light on Japanese characters. Um, it's very much white people saving the day kind of a movie, which, you know, is a thing. But, um, but I thought he was very effective in this. Yeah, I, I do enjoy Ken Watanabe's work when he shows up in things. And I, I wish the Hollywood structure would more easily give him leading roles because I believe he can carry them. Yes, definitely can. He's a leading actor playing supporting roles. And then we have a leading actor in a supporting role as well with Brian Cranston, who is in the first few minutes of the film. Um, he's probably best known for his roles as Walter White in Breaking Bad. Yes. 
so he's also the father, Hal, in Malcolm in the Middle, and was in Argo, Trumbo, an episode of The X-Files, you know, a, a number of voices on The Family Guy in six episodes, as well as roles on Robot Chicken. Most people know who he is now. He's actually also one of those guys where everyone who works with him says he's just wonderful to work with, which I believe because he's the guy who showed up at San Diego Comic-Con wearing a Walter White mask, cosplaying as Walter White. So he was out on the floor and getting compliments on his cosplay from some people, not from others because they're like, yeah, it's a store-bought mask. It's not very convincing. And they're saying, yeah, Brian Cranston should be here. And he just... this. Walter White cosplayer steps up out of the audience, takes the mask off, and no, it's actually Walter White. Reminds me of the moment where uh, the Spider-Man cosplayer comes up to the panel to ask a question and takes off his mask and it's Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a few of those, but... He was also, um, he was Zordon in the new Power Rangers film. Okay. I haven't seen that. I, I miss Power Rangers as a child, so wasn't... Again, didn't prioritize the new one, although I wasn't off-put by the trailers either. It's a fun little film. I mean, it's definitely, you know, playing to a particular audience. But for what it's doing, I think it does it well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so also reunited in this film with Aaron Taylor-Johnson is Elizabeth Olsen. Yes. So, I don't, although I don't know that they shared scenes together. Aaron and Elizabeth? Yeah, they... Yeah, she, because she plays the, so it's been a few weeks since I watched this one, because our recording date was rescheduled. Uh, But yeah, she's El Brody. Is she not his mother in the flashback? No, she's his wife. Oh, his wife. Okay. So yes, right. They definitely have scenes together then. Yeah. In fact, it's funny because this comes out right before Avengers Age of Ultron, which is their next thing together. And in that, they're Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, brother and sister. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I was watching this thinking, wow, this Godzilla movie must take place in the Ultimate Marvel Universe because Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are married. Yeah, the Ultimate Marvel Universe does some different things with them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, it does. Yes, it does. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, she's got, you know, 24 acting credits to her name. Going back to How the West Was Fun which I believe was mostly a vehicle for her older sisters, Mary-Kate and Ashley. Right. She comes into Hollywood basically as she's the younger sister of the Olsen twins. And that's what she's known as until she starts to make her own, her own career out of it. I had yeah. never seen her in anything until I saw her in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, where she's a cameo at the end, and then Avengers Age of Ultron, where she's a Scarlet Witch. Uh, I did not see Godzilla, as I said earlier in the show, I did not see Godzilla until just this week, so I didn't know her from that. Um, but I'm looking at these other credits, and I do not recognize a single title. Uh, yeah, the only one I recognize prior to Winter Soldier is Old Boy. And that's just a movie I'm aware of, but haven't seen. But yeah, she does seem to be doing a lot of her work in independent film. So with the Avengers movies and Godzilla under her belt, now she's out there saying, okay, you know, those are really good for the paychecks. Now let's do the creative outlet over here. Right, right. What is WandaVision? Oh, that's the TV show, WandaVision. Is that the name of it? I did not know that. Yes, uh, it sounds like the WandaVision upcoming film on the Disney streaming service is um, her attempt to 
Scarlet Witch's attempt to deal with the loss of the vision by living in a 50s era sitcom in an alternate reality that she creates. Seriously? I did not know that was released as the concept. Those are the, the rumors I've heard. I haven't seen any official Disney release on it, aside from these are the stars and these are the titles, which I suspect they're saving for San Diego Comic-Con this year. Yes. Because it's you would be really hard to discuss things like the Sam Wilson, Bucky Barnes team-up show without spoiling Endgame. Right. We also have uh, Carson Bold as Sam Brody. So he's got 12 acting credits to his name, which doesn't sound like a lot until you know he's a child actor. So that could be like one a year for his entire life kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So this was his third film. His first two credits were TV movies and short films from 2009. And then it's Godzilla, Key and Peele, Adam Ruins Everything, Jimmy Kimmel Live. And, you know, beyond says the interviewer. Yeah. So, so it's. He doesn't have a, a lot aside from this that's super prominent, but he's really just getting started. We also have Sally Hawkins, 54 credits to her name. So she is one of the more prominent ones here. So she plays Vivian Graham in this, but she's got credits going back to Mirror Mirror in 1996. She had an uncredited role as a villager in episode one, The Phantom Menace, that Star Wars film. Mm. But yeah, she was also in Layer Cake, which is an independent film starring Daniel Craig and directed by Matthew Vaughn that came out in 2004. She was in the H.G. Uh, Wells' War with the World TV movie, which was about the War of the Worlds and the mostly apocryphal story about the panic that ensued when H.G. Wells, or when, uh, when Orson Welles read it on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, I've wondered if that's one of those things that, like, there were a, a few small reactions, and so that became the story. Uh, there's actually no police record of any panics or riots of any kind, and they were only reported by the radio station where that special aired. Oh, that's fun. So it okay. seems like a pure marketing construction. Well, I know her from the two Paddington films, where she is the mother um, in those and she's delightful because the, the the two Paddington films are, are very much worth uh, watching. And I have not seen The Shape of Water. My wife and daughter both saw it, and they tell me I need to see it at some point because um, it's just so bizarre. But evidently, she's in that. Yeah, and that's uh, that's on my to watch list because again, one best picture. So that ninety nine years one hundred films podcast starts in December, going through every best picture winner. So that is definitely on the list. It's the the concept is interesting. I've I've heard it, it began with a fan of the creature from the Black Lagoon saying, "Well, what if the woman also was in love with the creature?" And it goes from there. But yeah, I've only seen the first Paddington film, and it was surprisingly enjoyable. I went in with little or no expectations because, you know, that's the safest way to watch a kids movie, and was very pleasantly surprised across the board. Um, and Sally Hawkins has also been in adaptations of Great Expectations and Jane Eyre and some other major literary works. And there's a movie I didn't know existed, but I'm interested in based solely on the title. It's a Wonderful Afterlife that came out I in 2010. I saw that. I have no idea what that is. Yeah, that, that, that's a rabbit hole to fall down another day. Uh, looks like an independent Australian film directed by Gurinder Chada. So 
The other two stars worth noting, we've got Juliette Binoche, who was Hannah in The English Patient, Vianne Rocher in Chocolat. She was Julie in Trois Colors Bleu, so the three-color trilogy, and uh, Dr. Ouellette in the recent live-action Ghost in the Shell. 74 acting credits to her name, a lot of them in French, which is her native language. Mm-hmm. I saw Chocolat at one point. Um, if I remember correctly, it's a, a bit of a magical realism film, romance in the European countryside. And I don't remember a whole lot beyond that. Well, yeah, that's the one that she was simply nominated for an Oscar for. She won the Oscar for The English Patient. I remember that being a thing. I think I may have watched it, but I think I remember not enjoying it. So I didn't really give it a whole lot of attention. And that might be my fault. It might be the film's fault. I don't know. Um, but I, I can't say I've seen that in the, in the aspect that I don't remember actually anything that happens in the movie. I remember trying to, and the pacing is not what I was looking for at the time, so it lost my interest. Yeah, but that's basically it's it's you want to sit down and get comfortable with your mind fully awake and and, and paying attention to a slow moving film, and you know as such, I'm sure it's delightful because Roma yeah. is the sort of same sort of thing. You need to sit down with Roma and just mm-hmm. like let the film happen, and it's a fantastic film, but it is not paced to keep your attention. Yeah, I would say the same thing about my all-time favorite film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, right. The other actor I want to call out is David Strathairn, who plays Admiral William Stentz in this. He is, according to the IMDb, known for playing Edward R. Murrow in Good Night and Good Luck, for playing William Seward in Lincoln, and Noah Vosen in The Bourne Ultimatum. He's got 135 credits to his name. Recurring roles on The Expanse, on Billions, McMafia, Great Decisions, The Blacklist. To me, he was actually in the same episode of Monk as uh, Evan Peters. Okay. So he was, well, spoilers, he's the killer in that one. But it's one of those episodes where it feels almost like a Columbo, where you know who the killer is right from the start, and it's how you're going to prove it more than anything else. He was in the Spiderwick Chronicles, which I saw, but as Arthur Spiderwick, I think he's like a character who's like, the character is important to the story as a concept, but you don't actually see him in the film hardly at all. Could be. To me, when I see him, I I think of him from two roles from the 90s. He was Ray McDear, Mitch's brother in The Firm from 1993, Mm. and he was Whistler in Sneakers from 1992. I need to see that again. I haven't seen Sneakers very many times, and it's been a long time. Yeah, it is worth watching. So, not like Best Picture material, so don't go in expecting your life to change. Yeah, it's one of those ones where, you know, go in with no expectations and you will enjoy it. It holds up fairly well, but it's not going to set the world on fire. He was in a league of their own. He was. I love Gina Davis. Gina Davis has like five amazing films and just stops acting. It's so weird. Yeah. But, hey, that was her choice. I mean, maybe the uh, the one she did with her husband at the time, the pirate movie, has something to do with it. Mm. I don't know why I'm blanking on the title right now. But yeah, so this was the rebooted Godzilla. I've actually only ever seen two Godzilla films. 
Okay. I've seen the American re-edit of the original, and uh, I have seen this. So I guess the first Godzilla, rather than Gojira, is the Gojira. one I've seen. Yes, the one with Raymond Burr, where he was not present in the Japanese film, and when they hired him to play the, the white guy so that you know white audiences would actually enjoy the film when they were dubbing it, they were going to have him shoot with the actors and some of the original Japanese actors made themselves available. But Burr was such an extreme racist, he refused to work with Asian actors and instead insisted that they get 10 and 12 year old children with straight black wigs and their backs to the camera. And that's who he filmed with instead. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the American re-edit of the film is, is kind of bizarre in that he is present in the scenes a lot of like the crowd scenes and stuff and the, the, like the meetings. But every time they cut to him, it's like a small backdrop of wall that could believably, you know, be a part of the room, but isn't actually a part of the room. And so he just feels like awkwardly inserted into this film that he is very obviously not actually a part of. Yeah. It's, it's clear that he was spliced in to try and make white audiences care. Cause now it has white people. Right. Which, you know, becomes less of a concern as time goes on, and I guess maybe World War II becomes a bit of a more distant memory. I don't know exactly the cultural and bigoted dynamics of 1954. Yeah, I, I would hope, though, that most of the audiences turning out for Godzilla, no matter what, are turning out for the monster. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that original one, Godzilla was not the hero, but that's the way audiences respond, even if that was not the filmmaker's intent, which is why they kept making more and why the tone has changed. Yeah, the um the film was originally released in in the states in the uh Japanese speaking areas of I want to say San Francisco or some part of California um and it did really well there and that's what um inspired the efforts at making a Caucasian acceptable version of the film. It's, you know, for those who haven't seen the original Godzilla, it's very much a response to the bomb. It's a response to the fact that they were still doing nuclear testing in Japanese waters. I think you're the one, maybe you're not, but maybe it was Luke Giacinetti. Someone told me that the opening flash of light that is like, you know, the first Godzilla attack, even though they don't see him in that scene, that uh, with their like fisher boats out there, whenever the flash of light happens, that was actually an homage to real events. There was a nuclear test done in Japanese waters that killed, you know, a fishing crew. And instead they turned it into an appearance of Godzilla. So it's, it's poignant. It's it's meant as a cautionary tale in a in a fantasy monster setting. And yeah, Godzilla is definitely not the hero. It's more of the result of mankind's folly. Yeah, it's the original and you would have heard that from Luke Giaconetti, because that was news to me. But yeah, the original one's very much you reap what you've sown and irresponsible nuclear testing have created this monster that is going to destroy the world unless we could find another way to stop it. Mm -hmm. And I should point out 
for fans of monsters and kaiju films, Luke Giaconetti does this podcast called Earth Destruction Directive. And that's all he talks about. He talks about different uh, kaiju monster films. Uh, talks about different comic adaptations from Marvel, like Shogun Warriors and the Godzilla comics and stuff. Um, but primarily, primarily the Daikaiju monster films from Japan. Um, and it's definitely worth worth a listen and worth your time. Uh, it's one of those where you could pick and choose which episodes you want to listen to if you want, because you can just pick the ones that talk about the movies you want to hear about. But um, but I really enjoy it. Yeah, I've I've heard great things, but I you know might tune in for. I'm the kind of guy where if I'm going to listen to a podcast discussing something, I want it to be after I've seen it myself, so I can hear what others have said about it. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't watched enough of the kaiju to to justify going out and doing much more other than that original Godzilla and now some of these. Maybe some of the King Kongs because I've seen most of those as well. And like I said, that was my entry point to this one. It was my wife wanted to see Kong Skull Island. And again, that was mostly because that one was filmed, at least in part, in Vietnam. And there Mm -hmm. are not a lot of American films that were filmed in Vietnam. We tried tracking it down and found like five of them. There's the remake wow. of The Quiet American. There's Kong Skull Island. There's Pan. There's M. Night Shyamalan's Avatar, The Last Airbender. Yeah. And there is one more that's escaping me now. So, yeah. So there, there's not a lot. So we have actually now have the complete set. But yeah, this one, it was actually a pleasant surprise. Because I remember watching the 1956 one. And the way they spliced Raymond Burr into it, I feel hurt the film. Because mm-hmm. they were so obviously shoving him in there, and there's no reason to have that character. Aside from people won't care unless there's white people in it. Which is a, an idea that really rubs me the wrong way. It's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies where you know, Hollywood didn't want to risk investing a lot of time and energy and resources into movies with non-white leads because they were afraid that people wouldn't respond. So as a result, the movies with non-white leads, and specifically non-white male leads, were not very good because they didn't have proper studio backing. So then they didn't do well. And they said, ha ha, see, we're right. Right. You know, like, for years they were saying, female superhero movies don't work. And the response was, no, Supergirl, Elektra, and Catwoman didn't work. Because they were bad movies, not because they had women in the lead. And now we have Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. Right. So, uh, yeah, so I enjoyed this well enough. It's, it, I think it's lost a lot of the, you know, the anti-technology allegory that was present in the Japanese original that mm-hmm. survived the American re-edit. Uh, but if you're in there just looking for a fun movie about a monster that destroys a lot of property before he's driven off. This will scratch that itch quite nicely. And it does, you know, take the idea of Godzilla helping, even though Godzilla um, himself, every time I say himself, I feel weird because, you know, Godzilla is a female in some versions. Um, But Godzilla as an entity is a threat to humanity at the same time can be helpful against bigger threats to humanity, which is a concept that, you know, is a big part of the Godzilla franchise 
And it's something that they wanted to set up in the first movie so that they could use it in their plots in the upcoming films. Right. Because, like I said, this leads into Kong Skull Island, which has, in particular, a post credit scene that really sets up the existence of other monsters. And those of us who've seen the trailer for Godzilla King of the Monsters, or by the time this comes out, seen the actual movie, since we are recording this the weekend before that is released, right? It, it is definitely going to be a thing. Yeah, it looks like Godzilla King of the Monsters really has a lot of the other monsters in it. And then it's going to lead into the Godzilla versus King Kong fight in the fourth film in their planned out franchise. And I can see why this franchise actually took off from a, a budget and profitability perspective. We are looking at a movie that had a production budget of $160 million. The domestic gross was just a bit over $200 million, rounds to 201 But then the foreign gross was 328 So the worldwide gross is $529,076,069. So... 529 versus what was the budget? 160 so yeah, certainly more than triple. So yeah, this this was undeniably profitable. And again, these like the two to three times proportion is something that that that's been a, a formula that's been around for years. And apparently, a lot of modern studios for these big blockbusters not even are no longer even looking to make profit in theaters. They're looking for the profit in home video after recouping most of the production costs in theaters. Mm-hmm. So if it starts making profit in theaters before the home video comes out, well, great. It's one of those things I've heard the two to three times operating budget so many times. And then Batman v Superman came out, <laughs> which, you know, is a whole thing. But there were all these discussions about how the film's not even making any money. And it made the triple number back. But people I were talking to who did not want to support the film's success kept moving the goalposts and saying that, you know, well, it made that number, but you have to take into account all this other stuff. It's been all this money on marketing. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. But why didn't we have those conversations with every other film that you've talked Mm -hmm. about its success? So I like to just follow the standard, you know, Oh, it made triple its budget? Awesome. That's great. Yeah. And frankly, the the reason it's that two to three range is to account for marketing costs. That's what I was thinking. But I don't know enough about the industry to, to like, you know, defend that position. Yeah. Because th- that range is because different studios spend a different amount of marketing. So Fox and Disney are known for pouring a lot of money into marketing. So they are the ones that need to hit triple. Movie or studios like Universal are much more likely to make a profit at just double because they don't do as much in terms of marketing. They do that more in partnership with the local exhibitors and they take a smaller cut at the box office. So that's a studio that really looks for home video to consider something profitable, which is why they backed Serenity, a $30 million budgeted movie, to release in a month where the highest gross movie of all time at that point had made $22 million with the, those September releases. So yeah, Dawn of Justice had a production budget of $250 million. With Warners, we're probably looking at another 125 to $150 million for marketing. So the total cost for that would be in the 375 to $400 million range. 
and it brought in about 874 million worldwide. So while the exhibitors get a cut, the studio keeps 60 to 70% of the first couple weeks and then more as it goes on. So, yeah, Batman v Superman made money. It's, yeah. It was just one of those movies, listeners to this podcast have heard us discuss it before. It produced visceral reactions. So people at both extremes of the conversation were often trying to twist and bias things to fit their narrative. But if you sit down and look at it objectively, whether you like it or not, you cannot deny this movie made money. Right. That the same can be said of Suicide Squad, but you don't see that raging debate because not as a lot of people loved it. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, by proportionality, Suicide Squad is probably DC's most profitable movie in the DCEU, which is not what we'd expect, but partly because it was just super cheap. But yeah, really enjoyed Godzilla. Glad I got to see it. Um, I thought it was a worthy addition to the franchise. Definitely, definitely looking forward to the uh, the next film, which has Eleven from Stranger Things in it. Actress name I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, the um, the trailers for the next film are interesting because they have a haunting rendition of oh, what Disney song is. It? I was hoping it would come to me as I was making the sentence. I forget which song. But it seems like the weirdest choice for a trailer about giant monsters, and yet it really, really works. Um, and there's this sense of wonder, like fear mixed with wonder at the giant monsters in the film that I think is really selling the concept. Because up until now, all these monsters have been dudes in rubber suits or giant models being manipulated by strings and whatever you the, mm-hmm. the, the, that were getting fully realized digital constructions, realistically textured, high definition presentation of Godzilla and other related creatures is fantastic. I love it. Yeah. And the, I just did some digging here. IMDb trivia says that the first trailer for the movie features Claude Debussy's Clear de Lune for the music. I don't know that Th- one. That's just the first trailer, though. So Okay. Uh, yeah, I think the one I saw was uh, maybe the a second trailer, but yeah, that's okay. But yeah, Godzilla's worth seeing. Yeah, like, I mean, again, don't go in expecting Shakespeare. But if you're looking for a monster movie that trashes a city, it's worth it. And it is apparently the first American attempt at Godzilla successful enough to produce a sequel. Mm-hmm. We know the 1997 one didn't. Well, right. That had a pretty amazing trailer. The 2014 Godzilla won an award for its trailer. It had a lot of other minor sci-fi nominations, but it won the Golden Trailer Awards. You know, the, the 1997 one had a couple wonderful teaser trailers. And I was working at a theater when they came out thinking this movie is going to be awesome. And then I heard all the reviews and realized, oh, yeah, you know what? The reason that they did so uh, such a good job with the teaser trailers is because they didn't have footage from the movie that would ignite audiences like that. So they were those trailers were not film footage. They were written as trailers. So the, the one that stands out in my mind for that, there's uh, a museum curator who doesn't sound like he's excited with his job 
bringing school children through and talking about the skeleton of this Tyrannosaurus rex, which is, you know, the largest predator uh, on land in the history of mankind. But you get, you know, the, the repeated vibrations, the kids are looking around, not really listening. And then Godzilla's foot comes through the ceiling and crushes the T-Rex skeleton as Godzilla just walks by. Right. And yeah, it, that had a huge impact on the audience. Everyone's like, man, I've got to see that. And apparently that was just independent footage written as a trailer for Godzilla and was not in the film. It has a pretty uh, memorable Taco Bell advertising campaign as well. Because that was the era when Taco Bell was using its little chihuahua critter who was saying, uh, yo quiero Taco Bell. And um, he's wandering the streets saying, here, lizard, lizard, lizard. Here, lizard, lizard. And then he like runs into Godzilla's eye, I think. And... Uh, freaks out yeah so yeah the, the makers of independence day did their take on godzilla and didn't go well it had some interesting ideas it had pretty solid monster effects the design of godzilla was pretty great i think it just the storytelling choices i think just didn't hit the mark with audiences because we are creatures of expectations. And if you don't meet our expectations on some level, we say you failed. In a lot of cases. There's others. I mean, Avengers Endgame did not take the story in any direction I expected. But that did not fail. Partly because they acknowledged no. it. Everything I expected was the plan that they tried in the first 15 minutes that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And then it was just, okay, now what? So they kind of met that expectation they acknowledged this is a way we could have gone we're not going that way right we end the film the way you expected it to have ended in the first 15 minutes and it was not successful yeah so we're gonna keep on going and try something else yes for another two hours and 45 minutes which was great stuff but anyway not an end game podcast so yeah so i'm not sure how much more we have to say about this i mean the awards, like I said, a lot of the, the minor sci-fi and visual effects awards. This isn't a huge one about the messages, morals, and meanings, because this Godzilla is not a direct result of nuclear testing. Mm -hmm. While that was a huge part of, you know, a lot of Japanese productions, including a lot of anime in the 50s and 60s, that has kind of fallen out of favor and is not a huge part of North American culture, which is, I mean, I think the last major North American production that was a success that only tangentially referenced it is probably SpongeBob SquarePants. Wow. That's the sort of unrevealed backstory. It's not on screen, but the creators have talked about it. Bikini Bottom is the bottom of Bikini Atoll, where they tested the nuclear weapons, and that's why the starfish and, and sea sponges and everything can walk and talk. Uh, I am, when we get off of here, going to immediately go to my kids and see if they know that. Okay. But yeah, that they're, they're all apparently radiation freaks and mutants from it. So, anyway, uh, so unless you had anything more to say, I think we can wrap up. Yeah, I think I'm good. All right, so John, thanks for joining me to, to do the, the send-off for this podcast series. Thank you for having me. All right, so if people want to hear you, and they should because you've got some great stuff, what are some of the projects that you have on the go? Okay, so um, I'm on Twitter, at John Reads Comics, and if you go there, my pinned tweet has links to all the different Twitter stuff. 
that represents my different projects. But every week on Fridays, I release a Marvel podcast called Make Hours Marvel, where Michael Kaiser and I are going through the 1960s Marvel Universe in order of publication. We started with the Fantastic Four number one, and we recently uh, recorded um, coverage of the Fantastic Four Annual 2 and Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1. So we're making our way through the 1960s. Um, I also have an Image Comics podcast I do solo. I release multiple episodes, the first of every month, and uh, that's just my way of exploring the early years of Image Comics. That's called All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast. It's on Twitter, at All the Pouches. Every weekend, I release a video of the original Super Sentai series, which if you don't know, we mentioned Power Rangers earlier. Power Rangers was originally a uh, recut, re-edited take on a Japanese superhero show that's been actually been going since the 1970s. And so my son and I are watching the original incarnation of that, which is Himitsu Sentai Go Ranger, and we're doing commentaries on it. So every week uh, we release Super Silly Sentai, an audio commentary on an episode of Go Ranger. Um, those are the three things I have currently going. I am actively working on two other projects they are going to see released later in the year a Transformers UK podcast called To Fuck You Say, which you can edit the that a little bit because I'm actually going to edit the name slightly every single episode. So that's going to be coming down the pike in uh, probably September. And I used to do a Star Wars podcast called the Star Wars Saga Cast, and I have been actively working on episodes. I'm getting ready to start releasing that later in the year as well. And I do a tweet blog about Wanda Maximoff the Scarlet Witch at Let's Talk Wanda, where I'm, as I read comics from the 60s, uh, I do my examination of her role in each story she appears in. So every panel and every scene that she's in, I, I try to pull some aspect of her character out and what she's doing, her motivations, and her, her growth as a person in the Marvel Universe. Okay. Yeah, she is one of the, the first characters that actually had an arc. So. Yeah, especially as a supporting character in another team's series, she and her brother went on a journey that it was pretty unique at the time. Yeah, they were introduced as reluctant villains, and it wasn't too long before they were acting as heroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which so, I just don't think anybody had ever done. I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough other comics history to know that for certain. But... um you know, Marvel took several villain characters and turned them into heroes. And when you read those early issues of the X-Men, it's apparent from the beginning that Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver don't want to be acting as villains. I'm not going to say that Stan knew from the beginning he was going to turn them into heroes and take them on that arc, but definitely was an organic growth of what was there from the beginning. Yeah, there's no question that they were the different kinds of villains because they didn't want to be and they were doing it because Magneto had an emotional hold over them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely there. And uh, Make Ours Marvel is one of those podcasts. I'm quite happy with the Castro podcasting app, partly because it supports ca- CarPlay. But it lets you say, these are the podcasts I'm subscribed to. Some of them, new episodes automatically go to the top of the listening queue. Some of them you say, okay, add it to the end of the listening queue. And some of them it's just let me know what's available and I can decide where it goes in the queue. And Make Ours Marvel is one of the ones that goes straight to the top when a new episode comes out. Yay. 
Makes me happy. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, again, thanks for joining us. And then uh, for those who like hearing me talk about movies, well, come December, Troy Hooks and I are launching 99 Years 100 Films, where we're going to be looking at every movie that's ever won Best Picture for the first 99 ceremonies, which means there's 100 movies, unless something wonky happens in those ceremonies that haven't happened yet because we are planning this for the future. That'll be a monthly podcast starting in December of 2019 that will end with the 100th film in February when the 100th ceremony is expected to air. So we're, we're trying to time it by that, but a lot of it depends on the Academy not changing things drastically on their end. You're probably safe. Yeah. The first few are just the two of us, but we're going to be having guest voices on in the future so who knows if john's got a particular best picture winner that he'd love to talk about you might be hearing us all together again fun all right so uh, until then the other podcast that we have going on bureau 42 we've got the ongoing x-files retrospective podcast which is nearing the end of season seven and we'll be going through all 11 seasons as well as the spin-offs and the spoofs and parodies. So when Reboot or John Who's Once a Thief did X-Files parodies, those are included. I'm able to include everything out there that exists I'm aware of except for an episode of Weird Science because they changed licenses. So seasons one and two were released by one company, seasons four and five were released by another company, and the X-Files spoof was in season three, that one that was never released. Uh, and we've also got Bedtime in the Public Domain, which is still ongoing and is actually a little more active since I was, I'm trying it on a new feed, which is one I have to pay for. So I'm trying to make, get my money's worth out of that one and make sure that there's new content every month. I had, some, I had an installment on that. You did. So John did our coverage of a James Branch Cabell novel, if I'm remembering the name of the author correctly. Mm-hmm. That was The Eagle's Shadow. So that has also featured The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, The Story of Dr. Doolittle, A Christmas Carol, The Marvelous Land of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, Through the Looking Glass, The Time Machine, Ozma of Oz is in progress as book 10. Book 11 has been recorded. That will be announced shortly. Actually, you know what? That will have been announced and will start four days before this episode drops. So if you are hearing this the day it's released, That'll be the day that Chapter 5 of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne is out. Oh, fun. And, uh, yeah, we are also recording Book 12. All right, so you can check those out, and thank you for listening.